Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. It's time for a look at what's been hitting the scientific headlines this week. Embryonic nerve cells transplanted into a recipient brain can survive, can wire themselves up, and can even correct a metabolic disorder in vulnerable individuals. Successful brain repair will almost certainly depend on the addition of replacement healthy cells into the injured or diseased brain. But the fate of these fresh cells, and whether or not they can functionally wire themselves up to existing nerve circuits, is presently poorly understood. Now, scientists have proved that these cells can do this by using cell transplantation techniques to remedy an obesity-triggering metabolic disorder in mice. Writing in the journal Science, Harvard scientist Jeffrey Macklis and his colleagues transplanted 15,000 nerve cells collected from mouse embryos into these special obese mice who lack the receptor in their brains for an appetite-suppressing signal called leptin. These cells also produce a glowing green pigment so that they can be discriminated from the host's own brain cells, and they were implanted into a region of the brain known as the medial hypothalamus, and that, amongst other things, is responsible for control appetite. Five months later, the researchers looked for signs that these donor neurons were still present in the brain and that they had electrically connected to their host brain neighbours. The implanted cells, they found, had wired themselves in and were functional. And to prove that, they also found that the treated animals were 30% lighter and had more normal blood glucose levels when compared to control animals and mice that had received grafts from other brain regions. And this research is definitely a proof of concept that adding new cells really can repair a neuronal circuit and can return it to full function. Sounds very, very hopeful, doesn't it? Now, on a rather different subject, the lowest possible temperature you can get liquid water to has been calculated. If you ask any group of school children what temperature does pure water freeze at, you will normally get the answer 0 degrees Celsius, which is the standard answer and is a temperature below which ice is more stable than water. But that isn't the whole story. It's actually quite easy to get water below this temperature just by putting a bottle of very clean water in a freezer. Because although large crystals are more stable than liquid water, a very small one isn't. So most of them shrink and melt before they become big enough to be stable. But how cold can you actually get liquid water? Valeria Molinero and Emily Moore from the University of Utah decided to do away with the experiments entirely and try and solve this problem in a computer. This isn't easy as forming ice intrinsically involves a lot of water molecules and because they sort of form crystals and they break up all the time. And to get a meaningful result, they had to model over 30,000 water molecules interacting with one another. And in fact, in order to do it in a sane amount of time on their computer, they had to model their water molecules as a single lump rather than as three separate atoms. They found that as the water cooled, more and more of the water formed tetrahedral structures, which were somewhere between ice and water, both in their structure and in density, uh, which they call intermediate ice. And this can then either convert into ice proper or into disordered glass-like structure when the whole lot finally froze. Now, after all this work, they finally found that the theoretical lowest temperature you can cool water to, and it's actually minus 55 degrees Celsius, which is rather a lot colder than you'd expect. That's phenomenal. I mean, that's so far below its freezing point that it makes me question whether the freezing point really means anything. 
it is very meaningful and it is the temperature which it's more stable at but that doesn't necessarily mean it is the temperature which it will freeze at um, this all might sound quite academic, but supercooled water is very important in many types of cloud, and it's actually been discovered there at minus 40 degrees Celsius already. And understanding how water behaves at these temperatures will help understand clouds and so hopefully assist with weather and climate prediction. So modelling the coldest you could possibly get cold water is actually not just quite a lot of fun, but it's actually quite meaningful as well. Indeed. Well, speaking of water, the world's oldest fishing tackle, together with evidence of deep-sea fishing 40,000 years ago, has been unearthed in East Timor. Early human migrants, including those who first set foot in Australia around 50,000 years ago, were clearly competent mariners. The journey from Eurasia into the northern part of the Australian continent would have involved crossing a 1500 kilometer wide deep water archipelago and this is negotiable only by boat and good seamanship but archaeological evidence that this actually happened is very sparse now though sue o'connor from the australian national university and her colleagues working at a site in east timor called jeremalai have discovered evidence that early human inhabitants of the coastline were catching and consuming fish from the open ocean as far back as forty-two thousand years ago bones belonging to over 20 different fish species were recovered from an excavation at the site with about 50 percent of them belonging to so-called pelagic or open water species like tuna to catch these, the Jeremalai settlers would need to have had ventured out to sea armed, most probably with something like nets. But even more exciting is the discovery, amongst the other finds, of two primitive fish hooks that are carved from pieces of shell, and they date from around 24,000 years ago. This is the earliest evidence of fish hook manufacture we have ever found. And as the researchers point out in the paper that's published in Science this week, if you'd like to read more, they say capturing fish such as tuna requires high levels of planning and complex maritime technology. The evidence implies that the inhabitants were fishing in the deep sea. That's quite impressive at that time. It's remarkable that we had the, the technology, the skills, but I suppose that's what enabled us to make those journeys and to actually bridge those gaps was our ability to cope with the sea. I guess one of the problems with studying this sort of thing is that a lot of the evidence must be underwater because the sea level has gone up and down so much that all the coastal communities are going to be right underwater. And, of course, when you're dealing with evidence from things like fish, the bones are very small, very hard to, hard to find. Tiny hooks are obviously likely to get broken or lost. So the evidence has been hard to find, but it does now seem to be forthcoming. Indeed, now onto a rather higher level of technology. The first light diode has been built on a silicon chip. For many years, engineers have wanted to use light instead of electricity to build circuits. It moves slightly faster, but more importantly, signals can pass one another without interfering. This lack of interference, however, makes it very difficult to make the light beams interact when you actually want them to. One of the simplest electronic devices is a diode, essentially a one-way valve for electricity. In light, this would be a true one-way mirror, and they're actually incredibly difficult to build. They have built them, but they're several millimetres or even centimetres across, and it hasn't been possible to build them onto a silicon chip. When you say a true one-way mirror, what's wrong with the one-way mirrors that we see on all of the police programmes, where you have your criminal on one side and your detective on the other? Well, those don't actually only let light through in one direction. They're essentially a partially silvered mirror, um, and the detective on the back is in a very dark room. 
which means that there's both the reflection and the image from behind the mirror but the behind the mirror is very very dark so you can't see it and the reflection just completely kind of overwhelms the image through the mirror so the effect that we see of it being a one-way mirror isn't really what it is but this new diode genuinely will only let light through in one direction that's right and caroline ross and colleagues at mit have actually managed to build this on a chip um, they've built a structure which involves a tiny conducting silicon loop electrical resonator which can absorb energy from light which is passing through a nearby piece of garnet covering half of the loop. The garnet is actually magnetic as well as transparent, which is a very rare property. So applying a magnetic field means the loop will actually absorb a different colour of light if it's moving in one direction to the other. So if you pick your colour very carefully, it can actually absorb 100 times more in one direction than going in the other direction. In the first case, this type of device would probably be built on the front of a laser to stop reflections interfering with the laser's operation. But a diode is a vital component for building more complex photonic circuits in the future. So this sort of technology is actually essential if we are going to build these light-based computers. And actually, it's also very important to the internet because a huge amount of the information is transferred down optic fibres, which is light, and you have to convert that back into electronic signals at the moment and then convert it back to light for the next stage. So if you could do it all in light, it would be brilliant. Also this week, a study published in The Lancet has confirmed the safety of the widely used class of drugs known as statins. Now, these are the most commonly used drugs worldwide for heart disease and are taken by millions of people globally. A randomised heart protection study back in the mid-1990s found the drugs to be highly effective against heart disease, but subsequent epidemiological studies did raise some fears of an increased risk of cancer associated with taking them. Now, Richard Bulbulia from the University of Oxford has followed up the participants in that study from the 90s to have a look at any long-term effects. Richard, thank you ever so much for joining us. Good evening, Ben. What were they really looking at back in the 90s? Were they just confirming that statins did work and did do what we think they should? Observational studies made it clear, really for around 30 or 40 years, that people with higher levels of bad cholesterol had increased risks of vascular disease. Um, and to test whether this association was causal, people did large randomised trials, such as the heart protection study, which lowered cholesterol and consequently lowered vascular risk by around one quarter. But the same epidemiological studies that highlighted the relationship between cholesterol and vascular risk also showed an increased risk of certain cancers and other causes of uh, non-vascular death with lower cholesterol levels. Those of us who sort of responsibly interpreted that data um, suggested that those findings were due to something called reverse causality, whereby it's the, the disease, such as the cancer, which causes the low cholesterol rather than the converse. But the concerns were out there and they substantially delayed the widespread use of, um, of statins. Now, the heart protection study, which reported its main results in 2001, had reassurance in that there were no excess risks of cancer or other non-vascular deaths associated with taking simvastatin 40 milligrams for around five years. But that five-year period was really too short to reliably address the prevalent concerns about the risks and safety of lowering cholesterol in many millions of people. And for that reason, we carried on following up all 17,000 surviving heart protection study participants for a further six years. So what have you actually been doing to follow them up? Are you just looking at medical records and incidences of different diseases or are you continuing to investigate more deeply what the lifestyle factors are? We followed the survivors in two ways. We asked them to complete postal questionnaires 
and the vast majority of the participants did so. And on these postal questionnaires, they told us certain things about their statin use after the trial period, whether or not they'd been to hospital, had any clinical events, and also indicated whether or not they'd be happy to receive a subsequent questionnaire the following year. That questionnaire procedure was uh, augmented by accessing uh, national registries for cancer incidents and uh, death certification for people who either had cancers or died during the follow-up period. Surely after the original trial, the people who had been taking placebo, as it was a controlled trial, they must have then been offered the statins. So surely actually the conditions have changed. How do you take account for that? That's a very important point. At the end of the trial, it was clear that everybody in the heart protection study would benefit from at least discussing whether or not they should take a statin with their GP, and all were encouraged to do so. Gratifyingly, over the six-year period, more and more people in both treatment groups began taking statin therapy. So by the end of the trial, the average use of statins was around 75% in both uh, original treatment groups. So our long-term follow-up results, which were in the Lancet this week, actually assess the effect of the initial five-year randomization to either simvastatin or placebo over an 11-year period. I guess the, the fact that people did start taking them afterwards also means that you could actually stratify your results and show that people have been taking it for this long, you see the following effects, but if people have been taking it for twice as long, then either you see more effects or you still don't see any effect, which should help you to be able to say the concerns about cancer were in fact not actually applicable. That's correct. I mean, there were three main findings in our, in our study. The first two are connected and are looking at benefits. And it's important to remember that, that, that statins are an incredibly effective form of treatment. Now, during the randomised phase of the trial, the absolute benefits of statin therapy increased as treatment continued, with year-on-year reductions of around one quarter after the first in-trial year. And second, the absolute benefits that those originally allocated simvastatin accrued during the in-trial period persisted in the post-trial period. That is to say, the people originally on placebo and then switched to statin therapy after the trial had closed never caught up with the original simvastatin group. And those two findings do show that starting statins early and continuing them long-term is necessary to maximise the reductions in major vascular events. And following on from that clear message, it's also very reassuring to note that over an 11-year period, there was no suggestion of an emergence of hazard on cancer, either globally or in certain specific subtypes of cancer, uh, or indeed other forms of uh, non-vascular disease and specifically non-vascular death emerging in this large cohort of trial participants. So there's clearly a take-home message there. Thank you very much. That's Richard Bulbulia from the University of Oxford. And as he said, if uh, you're in the risk group, then you should start taking statins early and stay on them. Dave. And now with a look at what else has been sparking scientific interest around the globe, here's Mira Senthalingam with the Naked Science Newsflash. A contact lens capable of displaying electronic information quite literally in front of your eyes is being developed by scientists in the US. Challenges include powering the device and displaying complex information such as text, but Babak Parviz and colleagues at the University of Washington have so far combined a miniature radio receiver and light source within a lens and wirelessly sent pixels of data safely into the eyes of rabbits. You can imagine your cell phone might send some information to your contact lens. The contact lens has an antenna that can receive the information, has a radio that can process the information and run a display with it, and there's some extra focusing mechanism that allows you to see 
damage. If you think about uh, our daily routines, we interact with a number of displays. There's a TV screen, and there's a computer display, the cell phone display. But in a sense, we don't really need all of them. If we have a personal display that is our contact lens, we can get rid of all these extra displays that we see around us and just have one display that is personalized to the user. Sudden stress can cause changes in connections between different regions of the brain. Short bursts of stress are known to sharpen senses, impair abilities to deliberate and create fearful arousal, although how this is achieved by the brain wasn't known. But now, by exposing human volunteers to clips of violent and non-violent films and imaging their brain activity, Erno Hermans and colleagues from the Donders Institute have discovered the changes in the brain causing these responses. We see change in the way brain regions communicate with each other. Those are regions that are involved in uh, reorienting attention and also regulation of your autonomic nervous system and of regulation of the stress system. So what we see here is that those regions sort of become active together and form a network as if they're integrating information across all these domains. This might be a model for, for studying what happens in potentially traumatic situations. A new material that can glow for over two weeks after just minutes of exposure to sunlight has been developed by scientists at the University of Georgia. A mixture of chromium ions embedded in a matrix of zinc, gallium and germanium oxide was used to soak up the energy in visible light and release near-infrared wavelengths for up to 15 days. Inventor Zhengwei Pan on its applications. The first one is in the military defence and the law enforcement. And the other thing is solar energy absorption and storage. And the third application is we can make the material into nanoparticles so that we can put this particle into the body so that it can link to some tumor cell for bioimaging. The first night-flowering orchid has been discovered by scientists at Kew Gardens. The flower, now named Bulbophyllum nocturnum, originates from the island of New Britain near Papua New Guinea and was found to open a few hours after dusk and remain that way until a few hours after dawn. But it only does this for one night. The orchid is the only one of its kind known to flower only at night, with the reasons behind this behaviour a subject of speculation for orchid expert Andre Scheutman from Kew Gardens. There are 25,000 species of orchids known approximately, and this is the first one of which we are certain that it is flowering at night. This is quite strange because related species flower during the daytime. We think this flower opens at night because it is pollinated by flies that are active after dark, or maybe early in the morning, when it's just getting dawn, probably to escape predators. More information and pictures of the orchid can be found on the Kew Gardens website at kew.org. And as usual, you'll find more science news along with references on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.